Alright, hey, we're back. It's Psychotronicast. I'm Alec Berg, and the talent is Derek Estes. You can and you should subscribe to us on every single forum that we're on, which is everything. And uh, we're at Psychotronicast. It's the handle. And we've got a handle on things. Speaking of having a handle on things, we are cruising into the end of our pride block. So without further ado, Derek, what the hell are you getting us into? All right. Uh, so we're going to do a movie. It's a Japanese new wave film from 1969, Funeral Parade of Roses. Uh, this movie is like just really awesome and insane and really exciting. It was also one of the big influences, apparently, uh, for Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Oh, shit. Um, but it, I think now, looking at it, it uh, it's just really interesting to see a lot of, uh, A, like just the, the Japanese culture of the time in the 60s, but also the way that they are dealing with the kind of gay elements and the queerness of, uh, of the main characters. Um, I don't really know what much I could say as far as introducing the movie mm-hmm. beforehand. I think we kind of have to jump in. Uh, it is, I will say, uh, also loosely a uh, an adaptation, or it was. Uh, I mean, I guess yeah, of uh, of Oedipus Rex. Oh, so there's a I lot of uh, little elements and you know plot twists that are influenced by that. So it's a really kind of interesting. Milaj, it's a really stylish movie, and I can't wait for you to see it. That's great. So, I have a loose handle on the history of uh, gay America, at least over the last hundred years. Do you got any... What were the politics in Japan at this time? Or at all? Like, what, I mean, I what, what's how globally, did... it was always, you know, really um, unusual. I mean, I think it was, it was not really... I don't think it was really accepted anywhere. Um, I think some places were maybe a little bit more like I think the French were, you know, they could progressive. Yeah, you know, not even or they just knew how to accept it. They, they had a place to kind of like, and I don't think they were glorifying it. And I think that there was a lot of um, a lot of issues. I as an uh, uneducated uh, armchair <laughs> guess, I would say that in Japan, and the impression that I get from this film is that it's not... They don't have a grasp on it in the way that maybe we would now. But I think that with the history of um, Japanese theater, um, say even like Kabuki and things where the the dressing up element of it is looked at more as like a novelty or as something that isn't necessarily... Um, there are a lot of things where they refer to all of them as kind of like gay boys. Okay. And a lot of them we would now consider even like transsexual. But I think that it's, you know, almost like the attitude that I get is almost more like they, you know, are like Beatles fans. Or, you know, like there's <laughs> something like this is a fad or this is this thing that you're doing. Uh, so it's it's patronizing to a degree. And I think it doesn't totally get it. And I think even the characters in this movie don't necessarily have like... Yeah, they're just doing. Oh, so this is this isn't made by a gay director or writer. You no, know, I actually like... don't know if the the filmmakers. I would imagine that someone's queer. Like, okay, I mean, somebody like, gets it. Yeah, because there's also stuff too. I mean, um, in Japan there were there's other precedents. Like there was Yukio Mishima, um, who was like a major, um, like writer and artist at this point. He was pretty open with. Uh, his homosexuality, and then about a year after this, 
he would um, commit seppuku like in a failed what? coup. Uh, crazy. There's actually a really good uh, Paul Schrader movie, Mishima, like four chapters. This is really amazing. So I think there is there is stuff like I, it would be hard to totally get a grasp on like the everyday aspects or how yeah. people like reacted to it. But it does seem like. Um, you know, a little different, maybe a little less violent, but then there's there's plenty of violence in this movie. And we'll, you'll you'll see. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm stoked. Ooh, let's get it going. We will be back shortly. All right. Hello. Hello. Perfect. And <clears throat> and just like that, we are back. Funeral parade of roses is finished, and now it's time for us to recap. I liked it. Awesome. It was good. Yeah, this movie is crazy. It's It'll be a little interesting to talk about this because this is really one of the most non-linear movies ever. Um, but it does like keep kind of building until you end up getting to where you're going. Yeah, I never um, thought I was going to... I thought that, that when the movie ended, I was going to have to look to you and be like, okay, what did I just watch? Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to do that. Um, I think a lot of this movie is hypnotic, mm-hmm. and that's what's really awesome about it. I also enjoy the way this film shot, obviously. Um, yeah, it's really it has a lot of those kind of um, experimental things. And uh, the director's name I'm totally blanking on, but we'll s- skip right now. Uh, but he started making a kind of experimental short films, and he was obviously uh, you know really influenced by a lot of the things going on at that point. There's even a, a point in the movie saying where the uh, they name drop Jonas Mikas, and they're trying to like that. Their friends are making experimental films, and they're trying to do stuff. And you get a lot of this, like the nonlinear elements, some of the stuff that the French New Wave was doing, and a lot of this, like really like punchy graphic um, stuff. Even to like the the fight where they have like the the um, almost like comic book you know dialogue bubbles. Yes, like, I mean there's like just was... there's so much stuff going on here, and then you really do kind of start taking it. Uh, you know, it's almost like uh, the mood and the atmosphere and the place, um, and it's very like a you know, like a collage or like a mosaic. You know, it's all these little pieces that, you know, as you start, they start building. Then you start kind of picking back up and you start like seeing what is going on. Yeah, it's hard to talk about this movie from start to finish, but. There are different themes that you can talk about with this film, at least via podcast. And one of them is, I don't know if this is just purely coincidental. I'm guessing that most of it is just um, inspired by. But how you were saying before we started watching this that uh, Stanley Kubrick um, like drew a lot of inspiration for this when he made Clockwork Orange... I see a lot of Gus Van Sant in my own private Idaho in this movie. Like, big time. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, those those elements as well. Like, I think um, as far as, like, the... Well, I guess there's multiple things going on. So you do have the kind of... Uh, well, now I, I would say we, we could probably agree that it's more of the trans situation going on. Like, you know, they, they're all referred to as, like, gay boys... Yeah, um, but you do have this kind of like hustling element to it, um, and there is, are those uh, elements of the movie where they have the interviews mm-hmm. with it's like out of character, just the actors talking about 
either their experience of being what they're calling gay boys uh, or their thoughts about the movie, their thoughts of the previous scene that happened, the thoughts of their own character. Um, and you you did see that in my own private Idaho when Gus Van Sant would interview, uh, you know, just like the, the gay kids in Portland. Right? You see a lot of that. This also, um, this came out like in 69. This is a couple years after. Ingmar Bergman did something similar that he even later didn't know if it totally worked in the movie. He did uh, The Passion of Anna and there's, uh, they'll have scenes and then interspersed there'll be interviews with... Uh, Max von Sydow and uh, Liv Ullman, and they'll be talking about their characters, what they thought, or how they built the character. And it's it's interesting. It doesn't totally work. That movie has some really cool parts to it, yeah, uh, that are really memorable. But it it it's like you can see he's kind of like he's trying to, uh, you know, experiment. And there was an experiment that just didn't totally gel. I think it works a lot better in this movie, mm-hmm. where I think this whole movie is so kind of chaotic. In a lot of ways, and that kind of adds to the the verve and the life of this movie. Um, you have, I guess, uh, I don't think we even talked about the main character, no. uh, Eddie, uh, who's played by an, an um, kind of a drag transvestite artist, uh, Peter, who was kind of a mini celebrity, I think, at this point. And later, it would even do stuff he work with like Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, because when you look at the IMDb page for this film, the only character who has a profile picture is Peter or Eddie or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you have like this character you're kind of following around. And it's kind of um, interesting because, you know, uh, Eddie is very passing, like very much like a oh, really yeah. beautiful. Japanese woman could have fooled me for sure. Yeah, um, so you're you're following this character, and there's like, it, yeah, it, it is hard to talk about this in a linear way because this movie doesn't. I mean, you'll see a scene, and you think that you're kind of following something, and then you will realize that you're jumping back and forth through time, and uh, you'll pick up with a scene that you left off a while ago, you know, like ten, fifteen, an hour, you know, later, you mm-hmm. know. Um, well, I guess what you can say about this movie is, I, I'm just, stuff that sticks out, uh, just right off the bat, I mean, we just watched this movie, so everything's pretty much sticking, but some shots that I can really uh, hold on to for a while. Um, some of my personal favorites were the the Cinderella scene, where you go, like, Cinder, <laughs> like uh, mirror, like the mirror on the wall, yeah. and then Peter enters the club, and like, standing right behind, and then... Yeah, they they get at it. And it's so I, I should know this character's name, but it, uh, this character that's kind of the uh, main, like, kind of antagonist, I guess, or a protagonist, or antagonist to uh, to Eddie, is the madam of the Genet, which is the gay bar that they all frequent. Um, what a bar! And the name is obviously is from Jean Genet, who is a queer French writer and also a filmmaker who had a really huge influence. But yeah, what a great bar. I also love the scene kind of early in the movie when they're with their Johns. Um, and it's a very, like, it's interesting because it's not even what we would think of as a gay bar. This is one of the things with this movie is it works, or it it, uh, it maneuvers in ways that are really unusual, I guess. It's a gay bar, but it's very... Um, uh, like, the men there, like the, you know the cis men I don't know you know they're very like yeah. masculine and then you have the very feminine gay boys 
Um, but one of the, the guys is just like, oh, this isn't like the way gay bars used to be. <laughs> and they were talking about how they used to play the, uh, I can't think of the instrument. It's like the traditional Japanese instrument. And they were looking for more of a traditional Japanese geisha sort of yeah, exactly. situation. And now it's like, you know, it's the 60s. And so, like, they're playing records. Yeah, 45s you know. Atlantic records. You yeah. can see on the label printed. And it's, yeah, the just the garage rock acid revolution. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the acid revolution, you do kind of follow a group of hippies. And I must say, um, I guess before, oh, well, kind of like intertwining the two, I had an awesome opportunity to go to Tokyo two years ago, and I went, and I spent five days there, and it was the best place I've ever been to in my life. It's like some of the best days ever, and one thing that you do find out about Tokyo real quick, whether it's 1969 or at that moment it's 2016, are everyone's so clean. The streets are clean. There's no litter. I don't know what's going on outside of Tokyo. I know I'm sure there's probably slums everywhere, but everyone has like so much integrity. And uh, for instance, I was staying in an Airbnb and it had a little tiny balcony and that's the whole, whole reason I got that Airbnb so is the only one I can find for that price range with a balcony and I would sit out of the balcony drink a sahi in the morning and I would watch the neighbor across the street uh, walk outside and uh, armor all his mailbox and you would see like construction trucks like concrete trucks stuff like that completely clean you would see people on the subways and they'd be wearing just like clothes that look like they just came from the dry cleaners. That's I have amazing. a friend that sells like, yeah, uh, previously worn watches that are like, you know, uh, not Rolexes, but like a step down from that. And uh, he always buys from Japan because they like meticulously take care of their stuff really mm-hmm. well. So um, the hippies in 1969, or at least portrayed in this film, are the cleanest hippies. They're beautiful. They're like, their hair is shiny, not oily. They look like they're wearing clean clothes. It's kind of like it's like uh, we should watch the uh, Stray Cat Rock movies with Miko Kaji. Oh, where that's oh, like all yeah. like yeah, I've seen like, them plenty of times on mute. Yeah, like, <laughs> I've like, never seen them with the actual audio. Yeah, but it's like really cool, just like fashion hippies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hell great. yeah, no, it's great, and the characters in this film are hilarious. They're Obviously, taking from the Beatles, there's a bunch of John Lennon glasses they all love over the place. The Beatles, the Beatles are all over the wall, but the one of the dudes has a fake beard, and it's just like whatever. Like you have your wigs, I have my beard wigs. You know, <laughs> it's so great. I mean, what a great concept. But I think it it, it it shows that element of. I mean, I think okay, so uh, it shows the, the element both of just the dedication to fashion, but it, I think it also plays into the element of the masks. That everyone's wearing, mm-hmm. and with uh, there's even like the only uh, Yukio Mishima book that I've read is uh, the Sailor Who Fell Up Grace of the Sea, which there are shadows of that later in this movie, as far as with uh, the son spying on his mother, having sex, and and elements of that. But uh, I know, and I have it. I have someone read it, but it's uh, his, you know big gay book was Confessions of a Mask and it's all about the masks people wear. Yeah. And I, I do feel there's such an emphasis on t- them talking about the masks and even watching people put their makeup on and doing their hair. And oh, those things. scenes of like the extreme close-ups of them putting their makeup on oh, yeah. is like remarkable. So I think that even plays into it. Like he's wearing his beard because that's part of the role he's playing. Like he is, he's not going to be, you know, I mean not that like Asian people can't grow beards like 
plenty of them do and can, but not quite in the uh, the way that like hippie fashion worked in the '60s. So you know, he's also putting that on, and these kind of pretensions that people are like putting on to fit the roles that they feel comfortable in. Yes, you know, uh, another. Uh, person I want to touch on in this movie is uh, the only black guy in Tokyo. Oh yeah, and my my thing with it is just like a little story I made up in my head was <laughs> <laughs> this guy's probably just living in America, just a regular old Joe doing his thing, and he's like, you know what? If I go to Tokyo and I'm the only black guy here, I'm gonna get so much ass. And yeah. he did. So, he I mean, that's did. my my personal backstory of him. It's just interesting to see there's one American in the film that speaks English, and he just happens to be a black guy. I mean, when I was in Tokyo, I saw zero black people. Like I said, I was only there for five days. Which is yes, kind of crazy, Tokyo. because the Japanese and black people have, like, a symbiotic relationship. At least in the United States. Like, black people are very into Japan. That's true. And know? vice versa. Yeah, so it I seems mean, like you would it, see that that should be, like, a much stronger, like, you know, it should be, like, a railroad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's... Yes. Uh, and some of the other shots I really appreciate in the movie are... Um, Sometimes the, the movie just cuts to different stuff, like, instantly. Mm-hmm. And one is of uh, that black guy. I think his name's Tony in the film. And they were walking down the alley, stumbling around drunk uh, oh, yeah. with uh, uh, Peter or Eddie? Eddie, yeah. Eddie, yeah. character's name. Yeah, yeah, it's a character's name. They were leaving with, and then it just goes to like this scrambling, uh, like protesting riot video. Yeah, it's like a distorted television image. Yeah, and it was just, it reminded me of like scramble porn. What uh, I used yeah. to watch with my friends, we'd have sleepovers, and you can turn on like the Playboy channel or whatever, and nobody's parents had you know it for real so you just watch it for 30 minutes and then finally you'd see a boob come into play and you're like oh my god and then it go back to being scrambly again yeah that just brought me back but i really liked how they worked that into the movie when you start meeting like all of those friends like all the like experimental friend you know like uh filmmaker hippie friends and they have this little tiny apartment that it's like 100 square feet it's literally yeah i think i'm looking at my living room is probably like 75% 75% of my living room. But they've literally packed in about 15 people yeah. in there. And they have this game where they all get really high and they all smoke marijuana, which I also was like, how do you find marijuana in 1969? Tokyo seems terrifying. Yeah. Like, also, like that's not weed. Like They're smoking opium weed or something. Because they also have those interviews interlaced in between those two scenes where, oh, what was the first time you smoked marijuana? And like... What's it like? What's it feel like when you smoke marijuana? And the way they describe it is, it's just like, cause per, take it from me, folks. I, <laughs> I've done a lot of drugs. I'm like, that is not weed. They are des- describing. They are talking about opiates. Mm-hmm. So who knows what was in that joint that they were smoking? Yeah, I don't know. But they were but having a looked fucking fun. grand old time. So they play this game where they make everyone like walk in a straight line. They get fucked up into walking like uh, on a line, like a fucking like. You know, DUI. <laughs> and then if you fall <laughs> down, then everyone rips your clothes. It's just like strip, fall down. Yes. Um, so anyhow, and then everyone gets like half naked. Then even like the girls are just like, I don't know, we didn't, we even won this game. And they took their tops off and they all just dance to like the most awesome psych distortion music. It's just like all yeah. feedback. Yeah, it's it feedback, bass lines, and like, yeah, drum circles. And or- it's the <laughs> best party I've seen in a long time. Oh, man, I'm, 
sad they didn't invite me. I know. I want to be there. I mean, we would both tower over all of them. And yeah. We'd probably fall. It would be like awkward. But it was like that's the spirit of the parties that I need. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, going back to um, how people were inspired by this film, you definitely see as the, the film progresses uh, what Stanley Kubrick was taking from when it came to Clockwork Orange because there's like three or four different scenes in the film that takes place with classical music uh, going two to three times the speed, like in yeah. fast motion or whatever. Like the the two people trying to pack up their gear with that Humphrey Bogart and uh, oh, yeah, Marilyn totally Monroe. Oh, yeah, hide the drugs. Hide the drugs. Yeah, those, the cat fight, the whatever. Uh, yeah. It's just like Alex and Clockwork Orange having sex with that girl after meeting her in the record store. And then also you pointed out with the chicks... Uh, eating the ice cream cones instead of, yeah. instead of lollipops. Totally, yeah. And the clock orange, they're like the girls are like, before they like fuck out, they're like sucking on those like phallic lollipops. And here they're like sucking, you know, eating these like giant like soft serve ice cream cones and then going shopping. But even their outfits are very modernist, mod, kind of like clockwork orange style. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because clockwork was in 71, this was 69. Yeah, so, so it's a couple of years. Yeah, pretty close. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. I love all of that. There's another scene that stuck out with me. It was uh, Eddie was uh, shaving his or her legs. Oh, I think it was the other bitch. Oh, it was the other bitch. That's right. Uh, She was shaving her legs with a straight razor dry shaving. And it just brought me back... uh, Back when I was in high school, growing up in Southern California in the early 2000s, that was the whole metrosexual revolution. Oh, yeah. And I've always been about as hairy as I am now, so... It took a while to get, like, I had to put on my mask. And my mask was taking off my mask. So, like, I still, my sister still lived with me at the time. So you were, like, almost half drag. It was, no. I, like, I, I, yeah, I get it. I fucking get it. Like, because I would have to shave everything when I, it was summertime. Wintertime is just, like, whatever. I'm never wearing shorts. I'm never going swimming. Whatever. Ain't no thing. But in the summertime, it was, like, my sister had nair a few times, and I would put it on, and then you're only supposed to leave it on for like ten minutes, and I would leave it on sometimes more, and then your skin starts to burn. But this is the thing. I will. I mean, it's also really sad too, because I mean, you're hairy, but you're not like Robin Williams hairy. I was in comparison to other like teenagers in high school. Like I think everyone eventually caught up to my hairiness. Okay. But I've like literally been like I, mean, I like like Hobbit hairy since. Yeah, since I was like, like full fucking head of hair, like fourteen. Yeah, yeah. But like when you're fourteen, everyone has a full head of hair. They just don't have a full body of hair. Yeah, They'll get that's there. True. That's true. I remember also uh, seventh grade. I got picked on for having. I was the first one to have like chest hair, and people, which is crazy. I understand now. It's just like, doesn't that make you a man? It's like I know, but where like, you were at, yeah. Because then like where I was at, literally, it'd be like the guys boasting about their chest hair. No, no, no. Yeah, see, in Los Angeles County. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It was super weird. Crazy. And also, uh, uh, you know, my junior high was also, I was one of like 20 white people. It was like mostly Mexicans. So it was just like, and Mexicans take longer to have body hair, I guess. I don't know. Everyone was super bald. like Native. Natives also, like, because they're, yeah. Yeah. Native American. And the, those people don't grow much hair at all. Yeah. Well, the old, what am I? Uh, uh, 23 and me. What, what am I? Uh, oh, French? Yeah. Wait, French and Norwegian. Oh, yeah. The old French and Norwegian in me had to had well, get that hair out. cold there. But her dry shaving in the movie, like, I've done every version of shaving everything. And, yeah, 
I, I just uh, felt her pain. I was like, <laughs> BTDT. Uh, yeah, my sister must have been so stoked to finally move out of the house because I was like doling all of her razors and using all of her nair. <laughs> Which is hilarious. And Nair smells like burnt orange. Oh, it stinks. It stinks. So it also doesn't really burnt work. Orange you have to, like, makes it sound it nicer. Like, okay, fine. Like just like no, but fart orange. Yeah, that. like it is. Like it's weird. It's like you know, like perms smell like farts and flowers. Yes, my mom. That's the other thing. Our house would always stink. It was like my mom was a beautician for thirty years, but she would do a lot of the stuff out of her garage. So she would like perm people's hair so that perm solution you need to go in the garage just, for that no yeah and then yeah that was like where it went down it's like the garage it always went it's like I you either, can't come into the real house you can't come into the house proper no like that no you she would either be that. like perming someone's hair in the garage or shaving my dad's back like those are the two things that I would always catch her That's doing awesome I can't wait for the Alec Burke movie it's, the story of your life it's just called like here we go again. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but this movie, yeah, there's, there's a lot of crazy... Oh, so I guess um, we're going to get into the uh, the Oedipus elements of this movie. Oh, 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 oh. So it is really funny because it... Um, is is really playful, I guess, with the way that these themes are introduced. And the first time I watched this, uh, it I just happened to have rewatched Pasolini's Oedipus Rex like a week before, and I really didn't even understand that this movie had like the Oedipus element. But there's a scene where um, Eddie is standing in front of like a whole series of like billboarded posters for Pasolini's Oedipus Rex. And you're like, at first I was like, oh, cool, that's crazy. I just watched the movie last week. Like, yeah. that's nuts. And as you watch the movie, you realize that these themes uh, are intentional and they keep coming up, but then they uh, are like inverted uh, like the genders in this movie. So instead of, um, you know, Oedipus killing his father and, you know, having sex with his mother, you end up uh, kind of seeing these elements of the young Eddie and... Peter is so young looking that you know so when they young. do him, he looks like he's like twelve or thirteen. Yeah. So it really sells that concept, which you know, a lot of times people try, you know, like either having the the actual actor play a younger or older part, it doesn't work. But it really works in this movie a lot. Um and you end up seeing like the mother and there's this photograph uh that you keep seeing the face being burned out from behind with a cigarette butt. It's a really like striking image in this movie. Um, and you don't really think about it much until uh, about the end of the movie when things all kind of start falling into place. Um, that's one of the ways this movie works is the fact that you're constantly like being fed these like kind of striking images and interesting like scenes, but you can't really piece them together. But as they all start falling into place, then you start really seeing a much bigger picture, which is a really cool way to reveal things, I think. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of stuff that you're like, oh, you know, whatever. But then as, like, things start piling on, mm -hmm. you start, like, seeing, like, you're just telling me a story in a really different way that is allowing for different, for me to realize things in much bigger ways. Yeah. So, um, it, it, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw and or remember the film... The book's good too, but the film Catch Twenty Two. Mm -mm. Okay, I really should, but no. That's the it. That's what it reminded me with this is 
how the, the only other time I could think of something not being so linear besides Twin Peaks The Return was yeah. uh, Catch-22 because there's so much stuff that happens with the... I'm not going to spoil anything, so don't worry. The There's a scene at the beginning where somebody's on the helicopter or, yeah, on a chopper and they're like laying down in the middle of World War II and then it keeps flashing to that but it shows like a couple seconds later, a couple seconds before and then eventually that's almost the end of the movie, not quite, but almost there and then once it all gets spilled out you're like, oh, shit. And it's such a mind fuck and you're like, oh my god. Uh, same thing with this too. Uh, that had like, yeah, shockingly the same similarities. It's weird watching this film and seeing how many things it reminds me of with other movies and I'm kind of thinking like you know what came first the chicken or the egg and with Clockwork Orange you obviously know with my own private Idaho but the whole Catch-22 thing I mean I'm actually that would have been before this though yes so I'm like I wonder if that person was like we should tell it like that or maybe I mean I think there were like there's a lot of people playing with form at this point too like you had um, yeah I mean you had a lot of People kind of experimenting with nonlinear formats. I think this movie does it really well, really well. Um, but I think, and there's just stuff like so. You have the the flashbacks where you have Eddie kind of watching his mother date, and you also kind of get the because obviously we understand because of the way that we're watching this movie. There's a scene where you have Eddie just like slumped in front of a mirror and just staring. Whatever, and it's just like it's kind of a, a little quiet scene, but you it's like it's so clear what you're watching, you know, like yeah. his feelings and just like he's still dressed like a boy and you know he fucking hates it. And you know, like seeing his mother like with these new guys and what's going on. So, uh, you I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this more linearly than you're gonna find it in the movie, yeah, the way totally put together, but um. Eddie ends up like kind of following his mother upstairs and watching her kind of like fooling around with this guy and decides to go in and kill these people. Murderous rampage. Yeah. And the violence, you know, with this movie, you didn't think, I thought it would just be like, oh, the knife going in and just. Oh, the Japanese like to get squirty. I forgot. And it's just like, stupid you. You should know better. You've seen plenty of Japanese movies. Ooh, wee, does it get gory in a few scenes? It's, uh, especially the finale. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bravo. Oh, yeah. Well, once you realize, so uh, eventually the the Madame of the Genet ends up like killing herself because she knows she's like, being eclipsed and it's interesting because that character too is also dresses in a more traditional style mm-hmm. where like the girls like uh you know eddie and uh, her girlfriends are all way, like they're way more mod and they've got like they're young and beautiful so you, you see this kind of like passing the guard and uh and eddie becomes the madam of uh of the Genet. And she has like really beautiful wigs and stuff. But uh, you realize that the man that she was kind of competing with the previous madam for, yeah, um, <laughs> they are hooking up, and then he kind of stumbles over to this room, and there's this book that Eddie's been carrying around for years. It says like the father returns. <laughs> it's like everything's very underlined. It's like this this movie when it plays very bold. It's like it. In some ways, you could almost not get away with this, but in this movie, it really works. You well, I think it's because everything is so 
it's not linear and it's very kind of confusing that you need stuff like that where it's like this is what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Bring they get away it with back it. to focus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah over here, right. over here, this way, this way. So uh, he opens the book and he finds the old family photo that has a cigarette burned through the man's face. Uh, and then he looks and he recognizes the other people in the picture and he realizes that it is himself, his ex-wife, and their son. Who he just fucked. Who he just fucked. So he doesn't take that very well. And As he you goes wouldn't. in. And he goes in the, the bathroom and takes out a blade and then kills himself. Um, which is also kind of a dick move too. It's like I mean, whatever. All these people are damaged. I but. thought of it. I thought of it as well. Of like, oh, that sucks because you're just gonna kill yourself, and this person's not gonna know why. But you can tell them because that's gonna fuck them up. Like, yeah, you got it right the first time. Oh, yeah. Like, so yeah. yeah then Eddie very comes. old boy. By the way, but very old say, boy. Uh, when Eddie notices, Eddie realizes what's going on somehow. Though now I can't think of how because that's when. Uh, like Oedipus, or maybe it is because when the previous man died, she also had these little dolls, and one of them had the nails going through the eyes. Yeah. Um, kind of like Oedipus, because you see flashbacks to that. Yeah. Uh, but then you see uh, Eddie, Oedipus. I never actually thought this. Oh. Wow, things are all coming into place. It's yeah. Like the drink. It, 1.56 a.m. It's yeah. all starting to make so, sense. So, um, yeah. So Eddie realizes and gouges out her eyes, and then which is amazing and brutal and just so beautiful. Nuts. Yeah, it is. And then she wanders out of her apartment building out into the streets yeah. of Tokyo. And that, that's what I pointed out to you is um, I got a few Aero screeners last year. Uh, the Takashi Miyake Black Trilogy uh, series. Yeah, and in the second film. Uh, there's uh, these like teenagers that make kind of like Japanese poppers or whatever you would say, and they kind of like uh, they peddle it on the streets, and it's like there's no way anybody got any permits. I don't know how it works in Japan, whatever. But that movie was made for no money, so they're obviously just like actually trying to sell these like fake drugs to real people on the streets. And I'm thinking like, wow, that's so crazy, but it's nothing compared to what happens at the end of this movie. With this chick has her eyes gouged out, and then she walks outside of this big building somewhere and spills out into Tokyo to all these passerbyers, and nobody knows the context of what's happening. Especially if you're young, like you're a little kid, like there truly is a toddler in that scene, (laughs) and you see that, it's going to be scarred into your brain for the rest of your life. And there's going to be no closure behind it. I know. Unless if, like, Perchance you stumble upon this like super underground movie that, to be honest, like maybe only we America appreciates. I'm sure Japan does too, but otherwise, I don't know. But like, I'll say, what an interesting person. I think we're all the all of us are interesting only because of the traumas we experienced. Oh, I can get behind that. I can definitely. The people get with no that. traumas are the people who are so boring you want to kill yourself. Exactly. To. Super milk toast people. I've worked with some people like that back when I had corporate jobs. And, uh, yeah, no, it's... Yeah. So those are, the people that, those are the people that didn't walk out into the street and saw a woman with gouged out eyes in Tokyo. Oh, That's man. who you turned into. You know what? Fuck that. If I went back to Tokyo and saw that, I'd be like, money well spent. You know? <laughs> like, come on. When are you ever gonna... I can. I feel like I could have handled that at any age. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. It, yeah, no, this movie was good. I, I liked it. I liked um, what how many other movies it reminded me of, even though those most of those movies came afterwards, but also how they weren't the same at all. Like, uh, there's yeah. not another movie like this. No. I do really love experimental film. Anytime I do sit down and actually watch one... Obviously, I'm seeing like the the creme de la creme. The you know what I yeah. mean? Like, I'm, there's so many bad ones. Just like there's so many bad any kind of genre That's film. True. But these ones that are being restored or that are part of Criterion or actually, who put this one out? Uh, this was uh, fucking hell. It's uh, it's two in the morning, people. We've had plenty to drink. No, it's it's so, gonna it's, happen. Uh, I'm totally because like um, oh, it's uh, Sinalicious, which always just seems <laughs> like you are not that name. Uh, but no, they actually have done a couple of things. Uh, they did, God damn it, my brain is not fucking working right now. But um, no, they released another movie uh, a while ago that I, I really love. That's um, it has uh, Corey, what's his name from uh, East, uh from Rebel of Cause and Warren Oates, my husband. Oh, yeah, you love you some world Warren Oates. Everyone should love Warren Oates because he's literally the greatest person ever. Let me get a double bourbon and a champagne back. Oh my god. He's um, my hero. I'm glad we did another Japanese film because we've only done two or three. Yeah, we've we... done three. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm glad we're. Yeah, not, this back not enough. The... Uh, yeah. There's not we... enough time to do anything. I know. I literally, there are themes that we could do entire podcasts about everything, um, including doing the queer series has been really tough because uh, there are so many movies that would be so fun to talk about, but just trying to pick the right ones. Uh, this one just seemed like the right one for right now uh, because of just the fact that uh, it's a really cool, interesting movie, but also I like the way that it deals with gender in ways that none of the other movies that we're going to be talking about in this series does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that it is also... It's it's interesting. I think I think a lot of these things would still be crazy during my life if I'd seen this even 20 years ago. But I think that uh, where we are right now and the way that we are uh, looking about and learning about um, just gender in general, um, I think this movie is kind of a really interesting like touchstone as far as looking at uh the way these things were being thought and the questions being asked because there are things that even you know kind of like i was saying earlier in the introduction where the way they deal with the gay issue in japan just seems very different in this because it's like they it doesn't seem like it's weird the attitudes coming towards the questions being asked is very strange and it does seem you know like kind of they're asking like it, it seems more like a trend like oh when did you become a biker oh yeah you know yeah like, when did you become a gay boy like oh or yeah when did you become a gay boy are you gonna keep doing this forever you, you know it, it seems more like maybe another trend or something that you, the kids are getting into that they'll grow out of yeah you're right um, that's that's what it feels like but then you also have the element where you have the answers and you can see like these Actors are uncomfortable. They're like, uh, okay, well, yeah, I guess I do. Like, do you like guys more or girls? And they're like, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to say. Like, duh. Uh, but then you also have um, the one who's just like, oh, you know, when did you want to be a gay boy? And she's like, oh, I was born this way. 
Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny because it's such a scene like. Too. They go know. to the next scene. It's like even they knew to cut away after that moment. It's just like, I don't know. It yeah. seemed very timely. It seemed like, oh, that's crazy. That's such a like now response. Yeah, it's a timeless I, response. I, I, it's <laughs> kind of the weird balance to the what seemed like very, you know, antiquated concepts of the questions to give such a modern contemporary response. It seems so perfect. And I know with um, the times how they are today and um, people get easily offended and it's fine if that's how it is like if you feel hate everyone's butt hurt all the time everyone's butt hurt all the time but if you are then that's cool whatever that's your own bag baby but with this film um, yeah they throw like the term gay boy around a lot which obviously doesn't offend me because I'm not a gay boy or a gay man but I've also watched Eddie Murphy raw with you, and you <laughs> laughed the whole way to the bank, so I know that you have thick skin. So I hope that if anybody did try to watch this movie and couldn't finish, or like just didn't watch this movie and maybe are turned off by some of the language in it, I believe that it's well worth the visit. And you also have to remember, it's 19-fucking-69, yeah. and people... Honestly, just got woke like three months ago. Yeah, so it's true. I think that the thing with this movie, I thought the the most difficult element for a lot of people will just be the artiness of it. Mm. You know, but I think if you can just like roll with it, if you can just like look, if this is the first arty movie you've seen, just what a great way it. to break it's like break that. It'll egg. be like it's you, you know you won't understand it now at first, but uh, just you know roll with it. Yeah, it's like the first time I saw Eight and a Half. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, I also haven't seen it since I was like a teenager, by the way, so I really need to watch it again. It'll be fun to rewatch. But I didn't obviously understand it, but I knew Fellini was somebody I needed to watch. And I watched that in uh, Mavita Loca. Oh, no. Oh, wait, no, Dolce Vita. (laughs) Mavita Loca, what's I, I drank one of those before this podcast. <laughs> La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vita. Mi Vita Loca. That's funny. I'm from Los Angeles. That's all right. Um, uh, so. Yeah, La Dolce Vita is also great. Yeah. I love, I mean, I love Fellini. I, I had a period where I was very uh, early Fellini, where it was like my cutoff was eight and a half. I loved eight and a half and everything earlier. Yes. But then I grew, and I'm like, oh, no, the later stuff is also great. But it, it also kind of drove me crazy. Well, those so, are the only, yeah, the only two that they had at Hollywood Video or Popcorn right. Video, I think I was going to back then. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that was my introduction into Experimental, even though those were feature-length films, and by then he was probably past all that. Yeah. Even though Eight and a Half is pretty trippy, in my oh, opinion. Yeah, or at is. least it was back in the that day. One, and that was why, I, when I, you know, for me, Eight and a Half was the movie that... It got so crazy and trippy that it was, especially seeing where he was from, you know, what he had done before. You're like, oh, well, he just, like, like flew out into, like, outer space. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it was just, like, one of the, like, crazy, like, just insane trajectory. He just, like, sh- just, like, shot off the planet. Yeah. Um, but then when he came back to do Juliet of the Spirits and he went into color and then he tried dealing with kind of a feminist, it just... It didn't. It just seemed like, oh, now you're trying to do it. And then also, it didn't. So seem I effortless. felt that way. And then later, I read, which I, I I don't even know if he really wrote, but uh, in Luis Buñuel's biography, autobiography, if he uh, he, he, talks about he wrote it. it. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's funny because, uh, yeah, one of his writers ended up saying like, oh yeah, I wrote a lot of that <laughs> okay. stories, but uh, <laughs> he was giving like questions about you know different things, and it and around the back of the book. And I think like, oh, Fellini, like, what, you know, what do you thought, you know? And he's like, oh, I love the early stuff. And 
you know, but I thought Julia did spirits, he was playing the genius, and, you know, like, whatever, and I heard that, like, even Lone is great, but I'm too blind and deaf to watch it now, because I'm, like, 80, you know? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, so I'm like, oh, yeah, I do think he was kind of playing the genius. But then, like, later, I'm like, no, he just was, like... He just was a genius. It just, it, it was really... Um, my perspective was that he was he was trying too hard, but then you see those later stuff. You're like, no, he just whatever. He was inspired to be insane. Yeah, it works really great. Like Toby Dam, I, Toby I, Dammit is so oh fucking God. good, and it's on Filmstruck now. That's great. I love it. Watch it. Uh, watch it. Toby Dammit. It's only like 20 minutes out of your day, and you will not regret it. Oh yeah, you'll never forget it. It's 20 minutes. Like you could do so many dumb things for 20 minutes. Yeah, it takes remember. me longer to jack off than watch Toby yeah. Dammit. I'm just so particular. And can you remember all of them? <laughs> Every time you have? Uh, no. But yeah. the... Um, uh, yeah, the other experimental film that I can remember... Uh, when we got like a Borders or a Barnes & Noble... It was... Uh, they We got like all kinds of crazy... Like our film section got yeah. super big. And I remember like they had the Criterion section, which the first Criterion I ever got was the BC Boys anthology, oh, yeah, so which good. was so great. That like two disc thing. You still have the poster lingering mm. around here somewhere. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, I have mine too, which is interesting. Um, the second one I ever bought was because I had no idea. I just I had a crazy cover and it was a two disc. And I remember I was getting a bargain. I was like, it's two discs for the price of one because it's the same price as anything else that was one disc was The Naked Lunch. Oh, it was the first yeah. David Cronenberg movie I'd ever seen. Oh, wow. And so yeah. I remember I watched it, and I didn't get it, and I'm not really sure if I liked it, but yeah. I bought it, and it was mine. So I'd have <laughs> to show it to everybody that I knew, and it kind of made me feel like, you don't get it, I do. Even though I didn't really get it, I was always that like I was always a music snob, and I was always a film snob when I was growing up, because I always thought I had like my finger on the pulse. And yeah. it's like... Shut up! You do That's not. So great. And like until like before I met you, I thought I knew everything. And then you're like, you know, Jalo, and I'm like, who? <laughs> Is she hot? Like so, I don't know. But I thought I was so cool with the naked lunch, and I watched that it a zillion really times. And uh, yeah, so those that's the other real film that I studied, and the fact that fucking RoboCop was in it. Oh yeah, I was, that's, that's the oh, only yeah. two movies that I've seen him in. I'm Just sure he's been have you seen, Have you seen uh, Buckaroo Banzai? No. Oh, yeah. He's, he's the lead in that movie, too. I know what That's it great. is, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that also blew my mind. And Jeff Goldblum dresses like cowboy as, like, everything in that movie. Oh. He's literally dressed like Woody from to- Toy Story. It's, like, that oh, style man. cowboy, but, like, young Jeff Goldblum. Ooh, I can get on board with that. I love him in Nashville. Oh, oh speaking of Cronenberg, yeah, The Fly, duh. Um, yeah, I saw The Naked Lunch before I saw The Fly, which is super oh my God. crazy. But now I've seen every David Cronenberg movie, it feels like. I mean, yeah. I had that, that twist before I even met you where I was watching all his Canadian films. Like oh, the yeah. Rabid and that other one in the... Shivers. Shivers, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So great. But we digress. We digress. That was it. That was it. That was good. Um, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, let's just keep it purely casual. Just like gay boys do.